Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count in Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. Today, I'm thrilled to share this special episode of Early Risers with you. Earlier this fall, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He's an award-winning author and historian known for his work around anti-racism, including the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Dr. Kendi is also a father to a young daughter. A few years ago, he started writing books for children. His most recent picture book is called Magnolia Flower, and it was inspired by a short story by Zora Neale Hurston. She was an African-American writer, anthropologist, and filmmaker who documented Black life in the early 20th century. Magnolia Flower tells the story of an Afro-Cherokee girl whose parents fled slavery and the Trail of Tears. I think it's helpful for people to realize that even during painful, violent moments like forced removal of Native peoples like slavery, even in those moments, people still found love. Magnolia Flower is ultimately a love story about survival and the quest for freedom. Dr. Kendi's books for children are great tools for opening up conversations with young children about the past and how it's relevant now, including a legacy of Black and Indigenous resistance. Welcome, Dr. Kendi. I am so excited to be talking with you today. And so let's just get right into it. So you are a premier historian of American history and our country's history with racism. You're also an award-winning author on anti-racism. What drew you to want to then add children's book author to your resume? I think that it's largely because I, I recognize that this is what people were looking for and asking for. Mm. I started to, while being a father, recognize just the absolutely critical importance of children's picture books, Mm -hmm. of the stories that they could tell, of the minds that they could shape, of the impact that they could make. And so I, I wanted to play a small part in being one of those people who were creating picture books for, for our young people that, that could, you know, allow them to recognize and and appreciate the equality that persists among humans. Yes, yes. And what I love about your newest book called Magnolia Flower is that it weaves together both African-American and Indigenous American history into one family, and it kind of highlights the strengths of both of those cultures and the strengths of this family. So what kind of inspired you about this story written by Zora Neale Hurston in 1925 to want to adapt that particular story for today's young audience? It's just a beautiful 
story. It is. Not just in terms of its imagery of these natural characters from it beginning with this uh, brook, this dancing brook coming upon this river and saying, please tell me a love story and Mm. the river relenting. Okay, I'll tell you a love story and then telling the story of Magnolia Flower, who, as you stated, is is Afro-Indigenous and is not going to be told no in -hmm. her pursuit of love. And then, you know, the end with her and, and John, her partner, returning to this place and space that for them was sacred. I mean, it's just a beautiful story that I thought children in particular would, would love and, and, and be moved by. I, I totally agree. And I, and I must say it is beautifully illustrated. And um, one of the things I love about the story is that there's a lot of hope in there for our future, even though this family has gone through some hard times. Just this image of love, and that love kind of supersedes some other things that might be happening. It is just a beautiful story with a lot of hope. And if there's one thing we need today, it's a lot of hope. Indeed. And I just think it's important also for people to know that one of the sources of hope is love. Mm. Is two people coming together and, and falling in love and wanting to create a world for themselves where they don't have to deal with injustice and violence, you know, as a result of, of racism. And, and so I, I think it's quite hopeful. And I also think it's helpful for people to realize that even during painful, violent moments like forced removal of Native peoples, like slavery, even in those moments, people still found love and found times of joy. Powerful. That is a powerful story. Yes. And and message. So I've heard or I think I've read somewhere that you say that your family did not specifically talk a lot about racism, specifically when you were young. How are your conversations with your daughter different than the ones you had with your parents when you were growing up? <laughs> I think that I just tried to create situations where my daughter would either be hoping to me sharing something or in which she asked me a question. So I personally am very deliberate about specifically like choosing and reading her books mm-hmm. that could provoke her curiosity, which then can propel, you know, conversation. So I, I don't think my parents were necessarily thinking about, okay, you know what, these are conversations that I that I'd like to have with my child to let me figure out ways to try to engineer those conversations. Yeah. And and that's really what, what I'm trying to do. Just like, I think it's important for us as, as parents to actively teach our children to, to be kind, to be considerate. Yes. And we use situations in order to convey those lessons. Mm-hmm. That is so true. So on, on my podcast on early risers, we talk a lot about how it's never really too early to talk to children about race, especially if it's developmentally appropriate. Children are recognizing race as early as three months. They're experiencing implicit bias starting at around two years old. And really, studies show that by the time a child is about five, they and, and that's the same age that many children are entering kindergarten, their biases are actually already kind of set in. How do you hope 
parents, caregivers, and teachers will use Magnolia Flower and some of your other children's books to combat this reality? I'm, I'm hoping that first teachers and parents and caregivers will just acknowledge what scholars have routinely found over the last 70 years, and especially over the last 30 years. And that is, if we do not actively teach kids to not connect skin color to positive and negative traits, then the world will end up socializing them to do so. And, And so we have to protect them, almost arm them through these conversations, through these situations, through these stories. And I'm hoping that that caregivers use my books as well as other books to arm their children so that, you know, a Black child or an Indigenous child or an Afro-Indigenous child like Magnolia Flower mm-hmm. can go out into the world knowing without a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing wrong with them because of the color of their skin. So, so a white child can be armed with the knowledge that they're special when they share, but they're not special because they're white. Right. If we do that, uh, it'll be so much easier for our children. And then they won't have to grow up like we did, in which we have to unlearn all these ideas. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to a special episode of Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. My guest is author and historian Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He's known for his award-winning books and research on anti-racism. Earlier this year, he released a new picture book for children called Magnolia Flower. It's an adaptation of a story written by Zora Neale Hurston nearly 100 years ago. We've been talking about why Dr. Kindy decided to start writing books for young readers. Your earlier books that you talked about, Anti-Racist Baby and Goodnight Racism, were explicitly about race in society. And they're, they're kind of written in a way that allows parents and caregivers plenty of opportunity for discussion, you know, with their children about race as you're reading them. But Magnolia Flower is different. It's actually, it's it's like a, a folktale in a way. And so how do you think these books connect together or do they connect together at all? I think the way they connect together is, in a way, it's, it's almost as if the anti-racist baby can provide a foundation of of words that children can use or begin to understand that allows them to explain what's going on. So like with not by six years old, but, you know, two years old, we're encouraging children to use their words, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's the same thing, you know, when our children get six and seven and eight years old and they're starting to see and understand and experience uh, racist discrimination or witness it. And sometimes, like, if let's say they're on the receiving end of it, or their friend, it happened to one of their friends, and they know something is wrong, but they don't have the language to articulate it. So, you know, anti-racist baby can give them the language to articulate it. Goodnight racism can allow them to see what's possible in a different type of world 
where racism doesn't exist. And in this world where racism still persists, they can see through Magnolia Flower that people are still finding love. And that love is actually fueling their resistance to racism. I love that. I love that for so many different reasons. But one of them is because on my podcast, Early Rises, one of the things I I try to do is dispel myths about talking to your children about about race and racism. And one of the myths out there is that if I talk to my child about race or racism, that's going to make them become racist. And actually, we know the opposite is true. And that being able to talk with them actually gives them language, like you're saying, it gives them language to combat racism or racist ideas as they grow up. When we don't talk about race or racism, that's when children are only left to learn through our implicit biases or from what we do not say. And so I love the fact that you're allowing conversations to give language to young children about how do you talk about this. And so what are some of the messages about being an anti-racist that you think are the most powerful ones that parents and caregivers should be conveying to their children? So our, our young children, especially if we're talking about, you know, younger children, they see skin color. They see differences in skin color. They also see that certain skin colors are in certain positions in society. Certain skin colors are on the richer or poor end of society. They see not only skin color, but they see inequality. Yes. Yes, And so I think it's important first for parents to actively teach their child about what I sort of talk about with my daughter about the human rainbow. Because mm-hmm. my daughter loves just the rainbow. <laughs> like, that's her favorite color. I love And that. she'll argue with you if you say it's not a color. <laughs> uh, and, but I talk about the human rainbow, like all the different shades of humanity. And so she gets to see her shade mm-hmm. and also see how her shade is connected to all those shades and how the, all those shades together make up humanity. And that humanity and all those shades is what makes it beautiful. So what that allows the child to see is see themselves, see others of different skin colors and connect themselves to those other people and see them all as one, see them all as equal. That will then allow the child to also not assume that a particular group skin color, quote unquote, has less because they are less. That may cause the child to rethink, okay, What's also going on here? And that then allows you by five and six and eight years old to start talking about bad rules, Mm. how certain people have certain groups have less money because of bad rules that are taking it away from them. So then the child is like, oh, yeah, because everybody's equal. That makes sense. Mm. That is so powerful. And those are the messages that I believe are difficult um, for some parents uh, to convey. And so we talk a lot about like, what are the actual words to say on the podcast? You know, because some of these conversations, um, especially for parents that are not accustomed to talking about race or uncomfortable having these conversations, this is an un- might be an uncomfortable um, conversation. 
um, especially when their children might be asking questions that they don't feel equipped to answer. And I often say, well, it's okay to say, I don't quite know that, that the answer to that question, but we can find out. It's kind of like you're going on a journey, you know, with your children. Um, and so what do you say to this idea about some parents say, this is a too difficult of a conversation to have? I'm, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. I think my kid is uncomfortable. So I just don't think I should have it. I would um, say to that parent that you have to reflect on the other uncomfortable conversations Mm -hmm. that you have already had or planning to have with your child. Yeah. Uncomfortable conversations like talking to them about stranger danger. Mm -hmm. That's not a comfortable conversation for any parent to have with their child. But they recognize if I don't teach my child to understand uh, that it's important for you to not be lured away by a stranger, what could happen to them, right? Just as it's not comfortable to teach the child what could happen to them if they don't look both ways when they cross the street. Yes. You don't want to have that. You don't want to share you know, about that. Yes. But you also want the child to be able to protect themselves because you're not going to be able to always be there with them in Absolutely. both cases. And as it relates to, to racist messages, like dark is ugly and light is good, mm. you as a, a parent can't protect the child. Like you can't be, be this force field that, that stops all those messages from, from hitting them. All you can do is have these difficult conversations so they learn to protect themselves. Yes. And it's the same thing about, you know, when they become teenagers or on the er- on the verge of being teenagers, we don't want to have conversations with our kids about sex, Mm-mm. but we want them to learn how to protect themselves. Exactly. <laughs> this is all in the same thing. Yes, that is so good. And, you know, and I think this feeling of being uncomfortable has led to a lot of attacks on on anything that um, talks about being anti-racist, as you know, you know, in in our country. So for me, as an African-American woman, I was watching with rapt attention the confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson. And so I don't know about you, but I was very surprised to see that your book, Anti-Racist Baby, was specifically called out um, for criticism in the congressional hearings by Senator Ted Cruz. I don't know if that surprised you. It surprised me. And I feel like, and so I'd like to know what your thoughts are, that it kind of set us back on this conversation around how to talk with your children about race. So what are your thoughts about, you know, the, the kind of the fallout from that conversation and, and where that's led us to this conversation about talking with children about race? So I, I, I think that I was certainly, sh- at the same time, I was surprised. I was not surprised. Mm. You know, I was surprised because, you know, this is a space where you have the opportunity to, you know, as a sitting U.S. Senator, it's not every day you get to uh, ask questions of a prospective justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm-hmm. You only have a certain amount of time. Right. And, you know, Justice uh, Brown Jackson has, of course, written a whole host of legal opinions and mm-hmm. has a, a storied background 
that that Senator Cruz could have uh, asked her about. Absolutely. But he uses that precious time to ask her about a, a board book. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, just the spectacle of it. Yes. Uh, you know, of course, was both shocking. But then again, it wasn't shocking because this is what people like him have been doing for almost two years, you know, trying to distort and weaponize literature and and even uh, writers and scholars who are trying to provide parents and people with resources to protect their children from these racist messages, to educate their children about history and about the world. Mm. And and so it wasn't actually surprising because I had experienced it personally for so long behind the scenes that that was just the most public, obviously, moment. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, mm. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that because I hear you say it's not surprising, but it's also incredibly disappointing from my perspective that you have been receiving that much criticism which I only believe is helping to fuel some of the polarization in our country. For that reason, and for many others, I'm very impressed about the choice for Magnolia Flower story, because I think this is also a story about unity, uh, about communities coming together, a family coming together, um, and weathering difficult times and allowing love to kind of lead them and, and lead the way, you know, in that. And so um, I just want to commend you for that and just ask you if you have any, you know, final thoughts about Magnolia Flower and uh, what you hope her message will be for young children, ultimately. I hope that the message of, of, of Magnolia for, for young children is that no matter what tragedies your family or your community may be facing, you are not a tragedy. And I hope that every child is able to grasp just the immense beauty of love. Dr. Kendi is the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. His books for children include Magnolia Flower, Anti-Racist Baby, and Goodnight Racism. He received a National Book Award for Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Early Risers will be back with a brand new season of episodes in 2023. In the meantime, you can keep up with us on social media. We're at Podcast Early on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now is also a good time to go back and listen to our archive of past episodes. 
And check out our discussion guides, including one we wrote for this episode with Dr. Kendi. Look for links at npr.org backslash early risers. And for more tips and resources on how to talk with young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Katie DeSell is our social media manager. Sound mixing by Alex Simpson. Special thanks to Stephanie Curtis for help with this episode. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. A special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks for listening.